Shalom and welcome to Israel. It's midnight from Jerusalem, our weekly virtual worship service. Tonight, I'd like to begin with an announcement. Next week, I'm speaking about November 12th, 13th, and 14th. Normally, at this time, we have our weekly live stream, Midnight from Jerusalem. But next weekend is going to be very different. Instead of just having one virtual worship service each week, we are going to broadcast our conference from Orlando, Florida. And there we're going to have a total of eight different live streams. Now, if you cannot attend that conference in person, and it's going to be in Orlando at the Doubletree Hotel SeaWorld. The conference is free. If you need a hotel room, you can make reservations at that hotel or the hotel of your preference. But if you come, you are going to experience some praise, some worship. There'll be a prayer room where you can go and find people praying with you and praying for you if you need that. And then we're going to have eight separate and distinct times of worship led by the Seed of Abraham Praise and Worship Team to be followed by eight distinct messages from Peter's first epistle. In fact, that weekend, November 12th, 13th, and 14th, beginning Friday evening the 12th, for Kabbalah Shabbat, all day Shabbat, November 13th, and concluding Sunday morning with our final study, we're going to go through all of Peter's first epistle, all five chapters. There'll be two studies on Friday evening, five studies on Shabbat, and one on Sunday morning. Now, for those of you who cannot come in person, we are going to be, and this is the point now, broadcasting it through our live stream platforms. It will be on English. As you look at the screen right now, you'll see that you can watch it on our website, loveisrael.org. Scroll down till you find the portion that has the live stream, and you just click on it and wait for it to begin. For those who would prefer, you can do it on our YouTube channel, loveisrael.org. For Spanish speakers, that's for English. For Spanish speakers, you can watch on the platform that is listed on the screen at this time. You don't need a separate link. You just go there at the proper time. To know the proper times, you can go to our schedule on our website, loveisrael.org. Go to the conference information, you'll see the conference schedule, and you'll see that it begins Friday evening, a little bit after 7 for the praise and worship, on Shabbat morning, beginning in the morning at around 9 o'clock, and then in the afternoon at 2, and then in the evening at 7, and then Sunday morning at 9, broadcast both in English and live translation on the spot by, by Einstein Guzman. So we're very thankful for him and all the people who have done great amount of works, investing their time, their effort, their resources to make this conference possible. Those who help prepare and those 
who will be working at the conference. We're greatly appreciative to them. So remember, our 12th annual loveisrael.org conference, November 12th, 13th, and 14th, beginning Friday evening, concluding on the first day of the week in the morning time, beginning at night. It's going to be an important conference, and the theme is remaining faithful while suffering. I believe, and through prayer, I truly was impressed to choose this first epistle of Peter as what we're studying because suffering is coming. And we need to learn how to remain faithful in the midst of suffering. Well, now let's go back to our time of worship in midnight from Jerusalem for our call to worship. I would invite you to take out your Bible, open it up to the book of Psalms, and find Psalm 105, as I'm doing at this time. Psalm 105, we're just going to look at the first verse, verse 1 where it says, I'll read this first in Hebrew, then translate. Hodu l'adonai, kir'u v'shmo, hodi'u ve'amim alilotaf, which means, give thanks to the Lord, call in his name. Very important, call in his name. And the scholars would tell us that means by his name, with his name. And that is speaking about Yeshua. And then it says, Make known, inform others who, it says here, hodiu ve'amim. Make mention, inform peoples. It's in the plural, meaning all people, no exception. And what are we supposed to inform them of? All of his deeds, all of his marvelous, wonderful works, because God only does that which is marvelous. So once more, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, or literally in his name, and make mention among the people his deeds. Well, now let's turn our attention to the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, for the Shema, as we pledge our faith to the God of Israel, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Baruch Shem Kavod, Machuto Leolam, Ved. Via Hafta et Adonai Elohecha, Bekole Vavcha, Vako Nafshecha, Vako Meodecha. Vehayu Hadvarim Ha Elea Shera Noki Mitzvacha Hayom Al, Leva Vecha. Veshina Natam Levanecha, Ve de Bartim Bam, Beshiptecha, Bevetacha, Vletacha, Vedergo Chak Becha, Ukumecha. Ucharam le ut al yedecha, vea you le totafot benanecha, uftavtam al mizzopitecha, uvisharecha. Which means, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your very essence. And these things which I command you today, they shall be upon your hearts, and you shall teach diligently your children. You shall speak of them when you walk in the way, when you rise 
when you lie down, when you rise up, and you shall bind them, meaning write them, literally bind them upon your, your, your arm, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. And now it says, you shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Well, now let's move into a time of prayer. Father God, we adore you. We give you thanks. We praise you. We glorify your name. For you and you alone are worthy of all things. All that you do is perfect. Lord, we not only give thanks to you, but we acknowledge your love for us, that you demonstrated while we were still sinners with the fact that you sent your only son into this world to lay down his life in order to impart to us his life, his righteousness, and that we would share in his victory. So, Father, what can we be but otherly thankful people for what you have done that we have now known by faith through your grace as sons of the living uh, God, as daughters of the living God? Lord, we are so blessed through you. Lord, we pray tonight for those who are hurting, for those who need healing because they're sick, those who need comforting because they're mourning, those who need encouragement because they are discouraged with things that are going on in their life that are, are hard, that are a problem, that, that represent the attack of the enemy. Lord, we pray tonight for those who need to repent. We pray that they would be quick to do so. Father, we know that your love is, is available through faith, in that gospel message. For those who have received it but have stumbled, we know that your love is constantly there, that you will receive us back with joy. So, Father, we pray for restoration. We pray for healing. We pray for encouragement. We pray for your will to be manifested in each of our lives. Father, we pray tonight for the nation of Israel, we pray for this, this instability that, that we see not only here in Israel, but spreading throughout all the world. We see governments becoming more controlling, not following the law as they should, but doing things according to their desire to rule over people. So, Father, give us insight. Teach us your wisdom. Allow us to be illuminated by your spirit that we might see correctly so that we can behave obediently. For this is our prayer in Messiah's name, Messiah Yeshua. Amen. God has a purpose, a purpose for all people. And we see one such purpose for a group of women, women who are widows. Now, last week we began chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, and we see that God wants things, and we mentioned this, to be done decently, correctly, according to his standards, according to his instructions, that his order be manifested. Because only when his order is manifested, then and only then, 
are you going to receive the outcome of his will? That his righteousness is going to be manifested, his glory is going to be revealed, and his work is going to be accomplished. So decently and in order is huge for each of our lives, but equally for that local congregation, the ecclesia, the congregation of the redeemed. And last week we saw that there was an emphasis upon widows and instructions that went along with this. And I want to pick up on this because the second part of chapter 5 of 1 Timothy deals with this in some very specific terms. So take out your Bible, look with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. I want to begin where I left off last week in verse 12. Now here we had been talking about younger women who are widows, but who are young and there's a tendency for them to strive away from, to turn away, to drift away from being faithful to Messiah and this unique call upon their life. He uses that old English word, they become wanton, meaning they stray. They, they strive against the things they ought to be and they begin to attach themselves for that which they ought not. And that's why he says, on account of this, having judgment. Because of this disobedience, it brings judgment. And that judgment may not only be upon them, but upon that local assembly. Because sin will become manifested and God's judgment will fall where it falls, upon that sin and those that are engaged in it. Now this word krema in Greek for judgment can also be, be understood in certain cases as Condemnation, they bring condemnation upon themselves. Because, keep reading, where we concluded last week, because the first faith, meaning the priority of their faith, they, they set aside. They chose something else. They said they made a profession. I want to be part of this, this, this sorority of widows. I want to be committed to good deeds, to ministry, and to prayer, making requests, supplications, and prayer before God night and day. They did that for a while, but they began to stray away. They, they began to strive against this call and embrace things that they ought not. That's what he's talking about. And it gets worse. There's constantly this, this downward progression. Instead of, of just remaining in one spot, if we're in disobedience, we will be brought down further and further. And that's why he says, and at the same time, also learning to be idle. Now, being idle is never God's will. Now, obviously, we all need times of, of leisure to, to be rejuvenated. But that's not what we're talking about here. It's not times of rest. It's not time of relaxing for a moment and with the implication to get back to work soon thereafter. But this is idle. It goes beyond leisure. 
it becomes a, a behavior that is normative for that person being idle. So they learn to be idle. Why? Because they are being supported, at least portionally, partially. They are getting assistance from the local congregation to provide for their needs. And therefore, they are, are free to do nothing. And they learn to do nothing. And because of that, notice what happens. But also, we see something. We see that also, the text says, look at the middle of verse 13. And, and going... To houses. Now, the word going, erkomai, has a prefix which means to go around. And it speaks about wandering from house to house is the implication here. So, not only are they idle, but it says here, going to houses, meaning house to house, and not only being idle, but also we see them engaging in gossip and this next word means to be engaging in something, and it's the same word over and over, around, about. Meaning they're paying attention on things that really they shouldn't be giving attention to. Now, some of the English Bibles translate this word as busybodies. And let me just simply say it's not a sexist term. Men can be just as guilty as being gossips and busybodies. It speaks about simply talking about others in a way that you shouldn't, and secondly, being engaged in the life of other people in a way that's inappropriate. That's what he's talking about. Focusing upon their life, maybe speaking of that to others and such, but also for the wrong motivation. And he goes on to say, speaking the things, notice, speaking the things that they ought not. Those things which are, and the key word here is speaking things that are not proper. Now, literally, if we were to translate this in Hebrew from Greek, it would be loke halacha, not according to the right lifestyle, the proper means to apply to our life's behavior, not thinking right, not doing right at all. So he says, this is the consequences when you do not scrutinize properly who becomes a widow in that, that spiritual sense. Now, not just in a literal sense, a woman's married, her husband dies, God forbid, she's a widow. But we're not just talking about that alone, but having reached the age of 60, having a testimony that she raised her children, that she has been engaged in good works, that she is a one-man woman. Remember, we talked about this last week. In the same way, to be a deacon, to be an overseer, to be a congregational leader, a man needs to be a one-woman man, meaning married to one woman, period. In the same way, if a woman has been divorced, therefore she's no longer a one-man woman. And she's not, she can be loved, she can engage in things, but she's not going to be formally part of this, this sorority of widows that engage in a formal way and that is supplied, meaning supported by the local congregation. So she has engaged in these things which are not appropriate. Verse 14, therefore I want, and this is in the terms of a command, 
Not just a suggestion, he says, therefore I want the younger women, and the implication is younger widows, I want the younger widows to marry, to raise children. This is how young they are. They still are in the childbearing years. To raise children and something of great importance. Don't let the world put this down. This is of a great honor. It is of great significance to God. And what is that? It is managing a household. If a woman manages her household well, and I'm speaking about her family, there is going to be much fruit for many generations. Likewise, if a woman doesn't put any emphasis on this, she doesn't do a good job managing her household, there is going to be adverse consequences for many generations as well. So these things, he says, let these younger women, meaning younger widows, marry raise children, manage their households, and not providing an opportunity, not giving an opportunity for those who are against, meaning for the one who is against, to do something, to exploit this reproach. Now, what's he talking about? If things are not done decently and in order, there is going to be sin in the community. Sin in that local congregation. And that is an instrument of reproach, meaning people from the outside, they see that, they're aware of it, they're watching, and it brings reproach upon the congregation. And therefore, he says, I want these younger women that they marry, they have children, that they manage their home, in order that the one who is against this does not exploit this, this reproach. That, that that is going on. Verse 15. For already, and Paul has much experience. Paul is well-traveled. He knows many, many, many congregations. He's seen a lot. And he has seen that already certain ones, meaning these women, they have, have strayed away. They have turned aside. And it says, after Satan. Now, many people are surprised by, by the appearing of Satan here. You mean to tell me if a woman is not doing these things that, that she is serving Satan? Well, understand the intent. See, when we read something and we don't have the background, the training, we arrive at the wrong conclusions. What is God saying here through Paul? Paul is instructing Peter. Excuse me, Paul is instructing Timothy to be aware of something, and it's this. If you are not serving God, you're serving the enemy. You are serving Satan. That's why it says you can't serve two masters. You either serve God or money, and money is a major asset that Satan has, the money in this world. He uses it to turn people away from where they ought to be walking, what they ought to be doing. Now, I'm going to say this, and it's a little bit of a tangent, but it's important. See, many of the people who are very popular in, in the believing community, they sell a lot of books. They're all the time on television and on the radio. They sometimes, not all, but a good portion of them, they never want to talk about judgment. 
They never want to talk about Satan. Do you realize that in the New Testament, they say they emphasize the New Testament. In the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, that term devil, Satan, demons, all of that appears numerous, numerous times. And someone says, oh, I teach the New Testament, but they never deal with this. They never deal with demons, unclean spirits, the devil, Satan, anything like that. They just stay away. That is not teaching the word of God. That is taking scripture and, and skewing it in a way for public consumption, for what you think the public wants to hear. Don't make that type of decision. Teach all of God's word. You don't know what they may be needing to hear. You don't know how God's going to use the scripture like this one, where he says, for already certain ones have turned away after the, the Satan, after that enemy. This is what we're supposed to do. Verse 16. For if someone, now, if you're following a modern translation, it leaves out a word. The word is pistos. Now, why is that important? Well, here, you find that, that in the Texas Receptus, what I'm using, and we're in verse 16, we have the word pistos and the word pisti, meaning a male believer and a female believer. Many of the modern translations only have a female believer. Why is that? Because the similarity of these words. And because they may make a mistake from the word E, which is, is or, it can also be simply the definite article. It's written the same in the biblical language. So they may have just missed the first time the word pisto appears and sees a word that's written so similar, pisti. It's a scribal air. But when we look at the best text, it has both and context, and just common sense would say that it's both. What does the text say? Verse 16. If a certain male believer or female believer has widows. So there are those women in his family or her family, and it's speaking about, obviously, someone who has the means. If they have the means to help out, they are commanded to do so. So first, before it becomes a congregational issue, if there's someone that can support this woman, whether that one who can support is a male or female, they ought to do it. That's what he's saying. Look again. If a certain believer, male or female, has widows, it says, let him, and that implies let him, let her, assist them and that the congregation be not burdened in order that the ones who are truly widows, that, that she, the one who's truly a widow, that she should be assisted. Meaning this, there's going to be lots of widows. Paul's limited to those who are 60, those who have had a certain reputation testimony, but even then, there can be a large number. So only those that are not uh, able to be supported by, by family, whether it's 
children, grandchildren, as we talked about last week, but it goes beyond that. Any family member, they should take it upon themselves if they have the means, and they should do what they can regardless. Some help is better than no help. They should help out these women. Why? A widow is precious to God. Verse 17. Now, in verse 17, we're going to make a switch. We're going to go back to, we see the word here for elders. And we're speaking here probably based upon the, the context, not just someone who's an older individual, but someone who is an elder in a congregational position sense. So he says here, the elders who have ruled well, meaning they led well, the word for ruling or leading is a word which means to stand before. It's a word of one having authority that utilizes this authority, and the word kalos means they did so in a proper, in a well manner, in a good way. So the elders who are ruling well, a double portion they are worthy of. A double portion. Especially the ones who toil, who engage in the word and teaching. Now, what is this for? It simply tells us the importance of the scripture. How vital the word of God is. And those that engage in the study of it. Not just people like me, but people like you that serve in a local congregation. I don't serve in a local congregation. We have an institute here, but it's not a congregation in that sense. So he's speaking not to someone like me, but someone who serves in a local congregation. It says those who engage in the word, and an elder can be like a pastor as well, who engage in the world thoroughly, working, laboring in the word and teaching it. It says that, that they are worthy of a double portion. Furthermore, look, if you would, to verse 18. For the scripture says, an ox that's treading, meaning an ox that's engaged in working in labor, do not muzzle. Why? If he's working, he should get his, his reward, his food. Also worthy is the worker of his wage. That's what the scripture says. In the same way that these, these widows, they're working, they're laboring, they're praying night and day, interceding for those in the local congregation or requests that come from the local congregation. Verse 19. Now he says, again, you're still talking about elders. He says, against an elder. And the implication is a ruling elder that's doing well. Against an elder, an accusation do not receive. Now, it's not a period at the end of this. It keeps going. There is an exclusion. He says, against an elder, an indictment or an accusation do not receive. And then we have the word ektos, which means unless. And then another phrase, a me. That is also except or unless. So when we look at this, if we translated it literally, it would say, against an elder, an accusation do not receive unless or except 
upon two or three witnesses. So only do so if the Torah would allow such a statement to be made within a judgment scenario. So two or three witnesses, at least two, one does not have any place. We would not consider an accusation of one person alone. Has to be two witnesses, not just people who want to say the same thing, but who have witnessed, who have evidence firsthand. And why it says two or three, two's enough, but three's better. And the implication is what Judaism says, if you have four, five, six, whatever, hear them all, that you have a complete and accurate uh, uh, understanding of what has happened. Sometimes someone may do something that seemsly, seems wrong, but when you get more information, you find that they were not acting in a wrong way. They were doing something that was, was appropriate for the right reason, so you need that full testimony. So he says, against an elder, an accusation do not accept unless and if only by two or three witnesses, verse 20. Now, in verse 20, we're talking about sinfulness, sinful behavior. Sinful behavior is done by sinful individuals. And it says here, sinfulness, the ones who sin, before all, reprove or, or convict, meaning speak against, set things in order. Now, there's a debate upon where do we put before all? The ones who are sitting before all in a public way, they sin and everyone sees it, or in a public fashion, rebuke them. Well, we have some guidance from the Scripture. Now, the Scripture tells us that if someone does something wrong, one person, the one who sees it, go to him. Now, you say, well, what about two or three witnesses? It's not for judgment yet. It hasn't reached that stage. I go and I do something I shouldn't, I sin, someone sees it. They come to me and they say, Baruch, we saw you do this. Well, I'm going to be truthful. I'm not going to deny it. Yes, I did that sin. Therefore, he's going to tell me, she's going to tell me, you need to repent. I repent. That's the end of the matter. I confess it. We pray together. We ask forgiveness for me. End of matter. If I rebuff them, no, I didn't do it. I'm lying. I did it, but I don't want to admit it, confess it. Then bring two or three others. Hopefully from that, it will end. I will say, well, you know, I should have said yes. I was embarrassed. I was uh, uh, scared. I didn't know what to do. I, I just said no as a reflection. I shouldn't. These two or three that come with it, if I do not rebuff them, but confess, do that same thing I should have the first time. I'm wrong. I need to repent. I need to ask forgiveness. We pray. End of matter. If I rebuff these two or three as well, then it goes before the whole congregation. Now, this may be speaking of something different. This may be speaking about a sin that is known publicly before all, and therefore it has to be dealt with in a public way. Why? So the congregation has a public reputation of dealing with sins. It's taking a stand, doing discipline. Very important because if not, well, look at the whole thing what's said here 
in verse, our verse that we're dealing with, verse 19. It says, against an elder, that's verse 19, let's go to verse 20, the one sinning or sinfulness before all convict in order that the remaining ones, the remaining ones, they have fear. This is important. It's only when oftentimes people see judgment, discipline, an outcome to their sinfulness that they're going to fear, meaning they're going to give priority, a godly priority to this. They're not going to scoff at sin. They're not going to ignore it. They're going to realize, you know what? If I don't repent, if I don't change, if I don't start doing the right things, maybe someone's going to put forth my sinfulness in a public manner. So it says here, do so in this way. Look again at the text, verse 20. Before all, convict in order that the remaining ones, the ones who are not involved in that issue that's being dealt with publicly, that they fear, verse 21. Now, verse 21 has a word for witnessing, testifying, bearing witness. But what's interesting, there's a prefix on it. And this relates to the word di diameter. What's a diameter? Well, you have a circle, and you begin at the end of the circle, on the side, where the circle ends. And you go to the middle, and you keep going to the other side, the entire diameter, thoroughly. So what this means here, when we have this, this prefix attached to the word for witnessing, look at verse 21. Testify thoroughly is how we should understand it to give a thorough testimony before God and the Lord Messiah Yeshua and the elect angels. Now, I hesitate, hesitate to go off on a tangent, but we have the word elected angels. Now, are we talking about angels that God looked at creation when he created the heavenly host, the angels, and says, him, I'm keeping, this one I'm not. It, I'm keeping, this other one, no. We don't see that. We see the elect angels are those that did not agree with Satan. Those that believed in God and kept to their position. So their election was not done by God, but God acknowledged their decision and chose them. This is the point here. So it says also, the elected angels, in order that these things, it says here, these things are kept, we could say, separate. Now, in Judaism, the first course that someone who wants to be a rav, a rabbi, takes is those things called mutar ve'asur, those things that are permitted and those things that are, are forbidden. And there's a separation. When you look at the book of Genesis, for example, you see that God created light to make a distinction between the good and bad, right and wrong. So in the same way, what, what Paul is telling Timothy is this. He says, there needs to be thorough testimony before God and our Lord Messiah Yeshua and the elect of the angels in order that we keep a separation 
that we do not have a mixture. And furthermore, we don't do things with a prejudiceness, nor do things according to favoritism. In Hebrew today would say protexia or masopanim. We don't have favorites. We do things based upon right or wrong. What is proper and what's improper. What is permitted and what is forbidden. That's what he's talking about here. So it sounds very, very traditional from the perspective of Judaism. That's in surprises based upon who's teaching the Apostle Paul. So don't do things with a prejudice or with a favoritism. Verse 22. Hands quickly do not lie upon, meaning this. Don't give people a position of authority, a leadership. Don't lay hands on them, commissioning them quickly. It should take time. And sometimes significant time before you lay hands upon a person. And nor fellowshipping with the sins of one another. Meaning don't participate in the sins of others. You be distinct. You be separate. Here in this last part of chapter 5, we see an emphasis on making a distinction. Being separate. Don't join, don't participate in the sinful activities of others. Rather, he says, look at the end of verse 22. He says, yourselves, pure, keep. Now, we would say, keep yourselves pure. But in the Greek, we have yourselves, pure, keep. And it's emphasizing that we need to be the ones that take responsibility for keeping ourselves pure. Nor, notice what he says to, to Timothy, and not drinking water, meaning don't drink water alone, but, he says, a little bit of wine you have need of. Now, why is that? On account of your stomach and the, the frequency of your weaknesses, your ailments. So Timothy, he was mature, he was useful, but he wasn't the most healthiest individual. And Paul is saying, and this is important, because he's saying, you can drink a little wine because of your stomach conditions, that you have some ailments. Now, realize in that day and age, pure water was more difficult to, to ascertain. Oftentimes, wine was used to dilute water and to be a purifying element within it. And therefore, Paul says, this is the case. Now, why is that there? Well, the laws of hermeneutics would tell us this. In order to show discernment. Paul is telling Timothy, you need to discern based upon your personal situation, that you have stomach problems and that you are frequently ill that you need to discern that and take the necessary actions. This is here as an example in regard to this situation, that you need to exercise discernment and look at the particular circumstances and make the right decisions. That's why that verse is there. And then he goes on to say, look now to verse 24. 
Some men, and it could be people in general, it's anthropos, meaning human beings. Some people, their sins are evident. Now, he's talking about something that, that I think is so significant and oftentimes very, very relevant for, for people, all people, but maybe in a different way. He's saying here, and I want to translate this properly, he says that there are some people, certain men and certain women, that their sins are evident, meaning simply they stand in a visible way. Now, they are, are people who have a tendency to do something that their sins are easily discernible. They are very evident. But he says also there are those that, uh, uh, well, we see first that goes before uh, in judgment meaning their sins are evident and they're going to get called to it and they're going to experience judgment. But there are others who also, and what it's implying here is that their sins are not so evident. They cover them up where or the nature of their sins are not publicly talked about, known, dealt with. There's things that are just better, better hidden. So their judgment doesn't come immediately, he says. These certain ones also, it says that they will appear, their judgment, their, their sinfulness, it will be known, but much later. Now, don't consider yourself blessed if you fall into the second category, that, that your sins are, are, are better camouflaged than others. Sometimes that can be a great uh, uh, negative aspect in your life. Well, let's conclude verse 25. Likewise also, the good works are evident. So he says, their sins that stand out, that immediately bring about judgment, punishment from the community, from the local congregation, or from God. And there's others that seem to take a while before people find out about this behavior of these people. He says, likewise also, the good works, they are evident. They are clear. Also, there are those others, meaning those on the outside. In regard to these good works, it says that they are not able to hide. Now, I like how it ends this chapter because he says, you know what? You know, when it comes to sin, there are some sins that are visible and some that are, are almost invisible for a while. But when it comes to good works, good works are evident. And even those others, those non-believers, those on the outside, they can't hide them. So it's talking about the power. Which is more powerful, sin or good works? The answer is good works. And he leaves off in this fifth chapter concluding it with a great encouragement, a message to engage in good works because they are going to be evident and they are going to be undeniable. They are going to, to bring about a desired outcome. So Paul, he wants the very best for Timothy's ministries, Timothy's call. And this is something that I want to close with because it is a true characteristic of someone who's walking with God.
that they want the best. They want to see other people thrive in godliness, in good works, thrive in their ministry. Someone who is being influenced by the enemy, when someone else has a a great thing happen to them, that kind of makes them feel inferior. They become jealous or envious. They, They need to do something, build themselves up immediately against that and such, or to put that person down. How shameful. Rejoice in the good things that God is doing in the lives of other people. They don't reflect poorly upon you. They reflect gloriously upon God. And that's what should be your source of joy. Well, until next week and our conference in Orlando, may God bless you and I trust that you'll be part of that conference, either in person or by watching online. Until then, shalom from Israel.